So on the surface, uh, Steve Schloss might not sound like the kind of person that has a lot in common with what we do, but I promise you he is. He's an executive coach. He's the founder of Listen Forward. He works with executives all over the world, uh, really as they're, uh, as they're building a growing company. As they build a small company, it's ready, ready to become a huge company. In talking with him, as I've gotten to know him over the last year or so, um, I've gotten to understand what he does, how he uh, influences executives, and a lot of what he does translates directly to the the executives in this industry. I'm talking to you, the owners and operators running restaurants. He will help you. This conversation is absolute fire. Do not go anywhere. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close, and this is Restaurant Strategy, a podcast dedicated solely to helping you build a more profitable restaurant. We cover marketing, we cover operations, we cover just about everything in between. Each week, I leverage my 20 plus years in the industry to help you build that more profitable and more sustainable business. I also work directly with operators all over the world through my P3 Mastermind program. What are the three P's? They stand for profit, process, and progress. If you've got a busy restaurant but struggle to generate consistent, predictable 20% profits month after month, then set up a free 30-minute strategy session. We'll get to learn more about you and your restaurant, you'll get to ask some questions, and you'll get to see if you're a good fit for this program. Visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. As always, you'll find that link in the show notes. Now, we all know managing costs is one of the most important parts of running a profitable restaurant, especially now. But between fluctuating vendor prices, waste, labor, and the never-ending list of tasks that demand your attention on a daily basis, it can be challenging for even the most experienced of us to manage costs well. That's where Margin Edge comes in. Margin Edge is a complete restaurant management software that automatically uses data from your POS and invoices to show you your food and labor costs in real time. Don't wait until it's too late. Margin Edge gives you tools to make decisions in the moment, like a daily P&L, price alerts on key ingredients, and real-time plate costs, all without ever having to touch a spreadsheet. Take control of your costs, work more efficiently, and be more profitable. Learn more at marginedge.com chip. And yes, that link is also in the show notes. Now, my guest on today's show is a friend of mine. Uh, I got to know him over the last year or two. Uh, we were golfing a bunch, and one uh, round we were golfing, and we started talking about, hey, what do you do? What do you do? And we realized we were both coaches. Now, he works in very different industry. He is the uh, the owner and principal of uh, Listen Forward, uh, and he's also the operating uh, partner and operating partner at Edison Partners. So again, he's an executive coach who works with organizations that are uh, on the surface much larger than ours, but the systems, the frameworks, the structures, the things he deals with are exactly the same. I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. Steve, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Chip, and uh, excited to talk. And yes, we could be out playing golf right now. We could. But, uh, you know, we still will, of course, but yeah. <laughs> uh, look, look forward to the conversation today. 
See, we, we bypassed uh, the stuff that we really wanted to do for the stuff that I guess I guess we'll do in the interim. Um, this is the thing that allows me to uh, to play golf every so often, and uh, and so let's get into it. For uh, context for the um, for the listeners, talk a little bit about what you do now, actually, um, and then I want to go back and I want to talk about what you what you did before this and sort of what led you up because I think mm-hmm. your background is really interesting as well. But start mm-hmm. with what you do now. Sure. So, uh, I, as you said, I do two things. Uh, I'm the uh, founder and principal of Listen Forward. Listen Forward is a CEO, executive, and executive team coaching practice. And so I work with uh, leaders in private industry, uh, in nonprofit, but also in the world of high growth organizations that are generally private equity funded. And it's that part where I also work as an operating partner for a growth equity investment firm called Edison Partners, which is based in Princeton. And there I do targeted CEO coaching and executive team work with high growth companies in their portfolio. And those are companies that are primarily in the area of fintech, healthcare technology, or consumer SaaS platforms. And so I've been doing that work for the last three plus years love what I do and uh, enjoy helping CEOs in particular uh, become more effective as leaders and as people as they're building their companies. So I want to pause right here for anybody listening. I hope you haven't turned it off yet because I know on the surface that Steve's uh, what Steve does right now is is in industries uh, that are very different from ours um, and perhaps working at a level that's that's much higher than sort of the the revenues that we deal with in the restaurant industry. But in talking to him um, as we prepped for this call, it just seems so much of like what he was saying um, translated to what we do because at the heart of it, and if if you heard him say it, he deals with executives, executives who are going from one level to another level, executives who now have big funding and there's now uh, greater expectations put upon them. And so gearing them up to grow, gearing them up to be the best leaders that they can possibly be, that's somewhere uh, a particular interest that I'd like to focus as we go on this conversation. And I think uh, the fact that Steve works at a level that's, again, perhaps higher than, than where we are um, or than where we would normally consider ourselves, but it is the exact same thing, um, the exact same principles. It's all it's all executive coaching, which comes down to how can we be the best leader we can be for our company, for our investors, for our employees, and for our customers. And that I know everybody listening to this episode uh, is uh, is acutely acutely aware of. So I want to make sure that you, you guys know that that's the direction we're going to take this, and and so much of. Uh, of what Steve does, I think uh, I think parlays really nicely. Talk to me a little bit about, and maybe this is the best way to go forward is to go back, talk about sort of what you did before here, but how you wound up doing that because I think it's I think it's really interesting. How did you how did you end up doing what you do now? So you know, my career uh, essentially is about building companies, just coincidentally, and I was in the world of human resources, uh, talent, culture, for three plus decades. And so I have built organizations in the world of financial services globally under the Citibank umbrella. I built digital brands and properties when I was part of Time Warner, uh, helping organizations create new digital forward brands at a time when the internet was 1.0, 2.0 versions of itself, 
and helping an organization transform the process. And then I became a chief people officer for a vast growing tech company, which was founder led. And that has its own unique uh, elements, which no different than starting your own restaurant or a chain of restaurants. 100%. And working in that dynamic, uh, along with investors, or in this case, it was publicly traded, it's also shareholders. And then in a completely different setting, working in an environment where I was a chief people officer of a sport. And this was the USGA, which is the governing body of golf globally. So this was, in many ways, helping guide a well-known premier organization uh, governing over a sport that, aside from the two of us, 25 million other people in the U.S. alone choose to play and uh, bringing a, a modern sensibility. And so all of those things connect in one way, which is how do we get the best out of executives to lead organizations and how do they do the same of those who are working for them? And ultimately, uh, I became a certified executive coach 15 years ago as part of my own personal learning journey. And uh, that led to an interest just around March of 2020 when we all went into remote mode. And I began my glide path towards wanting to do this work full time in my own practice. And ironically, my work with Edison Partners exist only because they were my first clients and after working with the partnership they asked me to become an operating partner so in some ways it was personally validating to know that what i brought was a value to them that they wanted to share with others yeah isn't that so interesting that you see the value of what you do and certainly as a coach and and i will say steve and i golfed probably two or three rounds together before we ever sort of it just never came up you know and it sort of came up and you know i, I knew you had worked at the usga but I, I didn't really knew i really didn't know what you did now and then i don't know we spent the entire back nine one day just talking about sort of the the overlap and the interesting and and i and i sort of fell into this in, in a unique way because i spent all these years in uh, restaurant operations, went back to school, did a lot of marketing, started consulting, mm -hmm. and ultimately mm -hmm. the pandemic sort of led me to this this path, which has been uh, some of the most satisfying work or the, certainly the most gratifying work that I've ever done in my career. Because um, we talk so much about leadership. Talk to me about leadership. I mean, what was it specifically that, because I want to ask a question, but I'll say this first. like. A leader is a tough thing to define, right? Because we, we know it when we see it. We know a good leader, a strong leader, or at least seemingly we do. Um, but how do you articulate it or how do you create it or cultivate that in a person? So before we get into specifically what you do, I, I want to understand how you have thought about that or how you do think about that. So uh, I'll do it in the context of what I call the four chairs. Okay. So when I coach an executive, uh, I talk about there are four chairs in the um, metaphorical room, if you will, that you can sit in. Okay, so if you are the leader of a business, you could be sitting in the chair at the head of the table. And in that case, uh, those that are working for you recognize and understand that they're there supporting your vision of what success looks like. and. Uh, the energy of the room in some ways is directed towards you. And uh, there's clear line of authority and accountability, but there's also clarity and there's a sense of direction. But you are sitting at the head of the table. 
The second chair you could sit at is the chair in the middle of the table, if you will, where you are facilitating the conversation. You are engaging everybody around the room. You're inviting dialogue. You're creating a space for people to engage and debate and disagree. And it's not about you. It's about those around you. But it's about you being part of the conversation versus just being the reason the conversation is happening. The third chair in the room is the room that you could be sitting in the back of the room, where essentially you're kind of leading from behind. And you've inspired people to operate and feel as if they can um, take accountability. And ultimately, you're supporting them to take leadership positions of their own and to have the confidence to know that uh, you're always present, even if you're not physically present, and that while you're not in front of them, they know that you're behind them in support of where they're headed. And then lastly is what I call the fourth and sometimes the most important chair, which is the chair sitting outside of the room, where the environment that you've created, the trust that you've um, been able to develop and found the company or the business on, and the fact that you've engendered an environment where success does not require you to be present every day or for every meeting, and that those around you have all the tools necessary to be successful, gives you the sense that you've done the right thing in both hiring for the right people, setting the right standards of performance, creating the right clarity for success, and ultimately building an understanding that what you should be doing is spending less time in the room and spending more time out of the room. So those are the things that when you think about leadership, it comes down to this dexterity of being able to be comfortable in any one of those settings. So we're not even 15 minutes into our conversation, and I knew there's a reason I had you on here. That is absolute gold. I've never heard it presented in that way, but I love it. The head of the table, the middle of the table, the back of the room, or outside in the hall. So a great leader has to sort of cultivate the ability to lead from any of those chairs. Am I understanding that right? That's correct. So Absolutely. Learning how to do that, and then obviously the right ways to do that, or the right times to do that. Talk to me about how you begin to work with a leader to get them to, number one, mm -hmm. see those chairs. And then, because I assume, I imagine a lot of, I mean, I think of the leaders that I've worked with, um, they're very comfortable in one of those chairs, but certainly not all four of them. Uh, but the very best leaders are good at doing all four of them. So t talk to me about that, what that process looks like. Yeah, so let me use a real life example. So, okay, so one of the things that I do is I have regular coaching and advising uh, sessions with a cross section of CEOs in the portfolio. But I also, uh, today, when I think about a conversation I had with a prospective client who is a CFO of a very significant high growth uh, consumer business, interestingly enough, in the restaurant industry. Okay. And uh, that's, this is not a setup, it's, it's legitimate. And this person is someone who has uh, significant upside potential. So as we talked about what this person is looking to improve upon or the feedback that uh, she got in this case, it's recognizing that you can both overweight in certain areas of strength or use those strengths in ways that sometimes can become weaknesses because you have to learn to adapt. And so you could be the kind of person whose success is based on always being at the head of the table, 
if you will, and always being the one to set the direction and not necessarily manage top down, but be the one who is essentially driving all the conversation. And the topic of our conversation was more about influence. How do I influence external investors? How do I influence the market's perception of us for fundraising? How do I influence the board? How do I influence my colleagues around the table? That's a different skill set than just setting direction and managing others. And that's in some ways an example of recognizing none of us are perfect across those four dimensions, those four chairs, but it is a recognition that in today's world, you have to learn to have a degree of leadership dexterity that allows you to go in and out of situations because we're facing more and more uncertainty and you've got to create some clarity in the midst of that uncertainty and you have to become comfortable in the space of uncertainty and influence is a key behavior and skill building exercise that you have to develop. And so that's one example of helping them understand how to use those tools effectively. So let's talk about influence a little bit because I love it. I mean, as you're explaining that, it's it's a influence is a sophisticated idea and a a very nuanced one um, mm-hmm. because it's sort of bring like influences uh, closely tied to manipulation, um, but also persuasion and, and all of that. So, so talk to me because, uh, cause I love the example that you shared there. So how do you, how does, how does that happen? I mean, charm and charisma is not, um, is not spread out evenly across the population. Um, and, and charm and charisma are things that are, Uh, helpful when we're talking about things like influence but how do you help people um how do you help people sort of find that or or gain that or learn that Mm -hmm. uh, this is a really interesting topic so the uh another client of mine as an example is looking to be developed to be part of a leadership team and one of the pieces of feedback this person received was that uh we want you to be more influential at the decision table and so influence you're right you can look at influence um in a negative connotation and that's uh yes manipulation is like the worst form of negative influence right and we're not talking about you know internet uh instagram level influence we're talking about authentic influence and that requires probably the two biggest skill sets for people And whether you're running a restaurant or you're running a large growth organization, there are two behaviors. One is the ability to listen effectively. So influence is not something you just do. It's something that you cultivate over time because you have to work with people who are willing to be influenced because of something that you bring to the table. And you have to display certain behaviors that help people understand that listening to you and being guided by you or being inspired by you all of those things are forms of influence are choices that people make right people can choose not to be influenced but there are things that you're doing that cause them to say wow what this person is bringing to the table is causing me to think differently is opening my eyes to something new is considering the situation we find ourselves in maybe to change my behavior and to do that means listening And listening for many leaders is maybe the most significant weakness that they have because they're spending more time influencing through directing versus 
really listening in the sense of asking questions and letting people know that, in fact, they're understanding and listening to what they have to say. And so the process of questioning alone is a skill set that allows you to influence effectively. So that's that in and of itself is a way to influence in an authentic mean. So I'm going to go down this road a little bit further because, uh, I, again, I love that. And I think we understand when, we, when we've when I've worked with really great leaders, mentors of mine, I, I've sort of been blown away by sort of how calm they are, how humble they are. And, and, and no matter how stressful I, I did a ton of restaurant openings for very high profile openings in New York City over the brunt of my career. And it's and it's about as high stakes as we get when there's, you know, five, 10, 20 million dollars online and this thing can get you know killed by the new york times review in the first you know nine weeks and right. all of that investment is lost and from from our perspective in, in our industry that's about as high stakes as as you can get short of launching right. a new hotel chain across 20 countries or something like that right that would be right. that would be big money but talk to me about listening because i think there's this feeling and, and maybe it's sort of wearing away but if I ask questions, somebody will think I don't know, and I'm the leader, I'm the boss, and I'm supposed to know. How do, certainly you must work with people who sort of have adopted that mentality, whether they realize it or not. How do you begin to to work on that? That asking questions is a sign of strength. That that leaning on your team is um, is actually what a leader is supposed to do. So, if I'm working with um, a team, not just individuals, but working with a team, which I do often. One of the first things that I'll do is put them through the process of helping them understand what it actually means to listen. Because if you're unable to listen effectively, it doesn't matter what question you're asking. Uh, and the person or the people that you're with will see right through that, right? So you can be a highly successful entrepreneur and start a company and be a horrific listener. That doesn't prevent you from success, but it does create a culture where you might be achieving high levels of results and productivity, but at the price of other things. And so part of what I do is help them understand that, look, listening is a process where you're both listening for facts and you're listening for feelings and interpretations that are necessarily unsaid. But to do that well, you have to be present. And when I say being present, it's not hey, look, let me show you that I'm listening to you because I'm asking questions. And so it's more about me than it is about you. It's about that you've been able to legitimately remove the noise around you, even in a busy environment like being at the height of a dinner service, but being able to give feedback to people on the floor in a way that's meaningful and impactful in the moment. My wife worked for Apple for many years, and one of the things that they used to do when she worked on the retail side of the company was to have what they call fast feedback, right? And fast feedback in the moment after a customer interaction is to pull the person aside and say, hey, listen, I was observing the interaction and I thought you did an amazing job, but here's a piece of feedback to be mindful of the next time you engage with the next customer or customers to come, because our NPS matters to us. Yep. So the, the process of listening is one thing. The other process, to your point, is what does it mean to ask effective questions? And effective questions in and of itself is very situational. What do I ask at what moment that 
garners the kind of engagement of the person or people that I'm working with, not to direct them, but to help them help themselves. And that in many ways is between listening and questioning is kind of half the, the, the loaf of what a coaching conversation looks like anyway. So the more you can help people understand those two skills effectively, the better off you're helping them to help others be more effective and to help you uh, do what you need to be spending your time more so than just telling people what to do. So I want to talk about when people are in over their head. You you were sort of one of the a part of the conversation that we had had. Not that you, not that you had people who were in over their head, but there are people who mm-hmm. this idea of right the things that got you here cannot take you there. It was something we were talking about before we hit record. But that I'm the expert on everything about my company, especially when you talk about founder led organizations, which many uh, certain uh, certainly many of the listeners will recognize. They are founder led. They it's their restaurant. Sure. You get to a point, though, and certainly some of the companies that you're talking about taking them to hyper growth mode or, you know, even as they go public, things like that. There's certainly there's now a threshold that they cross. How do we how do you gear them up for that? Because there are even if the restaurant owners listening to this podcast aren't taking their company public, they're still they've grown and they've grown in a way or grown to a point that that there's now things that. They did what they knew to do at the beginning, and now it's beyond that. How do you, how do you begin to sort of coach there, coach them through through across that that sea? So, you know, interestingly enough, um, and again, this is a golf metaphor here. So, excuse me, but you know, I was playing golf with a complete stranger a couple of weeks ago who was a highly successful entrepreneur in the shipping industry. And he mentioned to me that he had two companies, one that failed and one that he sold for a significant return. However, after he sold the company, I asked him, what do you do now? He goes, well, I work at a bank. And I said, what what do you mean? He goes, I lost the majority of my fortune. And I said, well, what is it that happened? He goes, well, I didn't know how to let go. And the point is, I didn't bring in the right people at the right time to help me make the right decisions along my journey. And the point being that as a founder, I've stewarded my vision to a degree of success, but I've been unable to let go and bring others into the process of help me run the company more effectively. And at some point, as many founders and startup leaders recognize that there is a threshold and the threshold is I'm no longer just solving the problems each day because I can, I have to depend on others to do it for me. And I have to be okay with that. That doesn't mean I'm stepping on their toes. It means I have to recognize that where I might be best serving the interest of my business might be uh, externally. I might have helped created the environment But I also have to recognize that of all the things I've got to focus on, I also have to realize that there are people that are better than me. There are people that I bring on for the expressed intent of leading the things that I started, making it better over time. And so the process of letting go and the journey of doing so might be the single biggest challenge and even factor of potential success when I'm assessing potential investments because if a person does not have the ability to let go or see what that feels and looks like, they could end up 
potentially diminishing growth opportunity or maybe being on a track to failure and they may not even realize it. Today's episode of Restaurant Strategy is also brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a team management platform built specifically for restaurants. Great restaurants are built by great teams and Seven Shifts is your secret weapon to better understand your restaurant, to hit labor targets, and to keep your entire team connected. With drag-and-drop scheduling, in-app communication, task management, tip management, and more, it makes restaurant work a lot easier. From back of house to front of house, managers, franchise owners, and larger corporate teams, Seven Shifts has benefits at every single level. Plus, it integrates with the other systems your restaurant already uses, like your POS system and your payroll. Turn your team into your competitive advantage. Restaurant Strategy Podcast listeners get three months absolutely free. Get started at sevenshifts.com slash restaurant strategy. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash restaurant strategy to get three months free and join over 30,000 restaurants using Seven Shifts today. As always, you will find that link in the show notes. So much of what you're saying, it strikes me as I'm hearing it, it's, it has to do with identity. That, I mean, the the person you're talking about here, there was like his identity was wrapped up in sort of his ability to do this or, or in his company or his role within that. Right. And I think that's probably true, again, I think about the audience who are listening here, um, a lot of restaurant owners who their identity was get up, go to the restaurant, prep all day, work lunch service, pay the bills, answer emails, pound through dinner service, have a beer with my team, go home, drop in bed. That, that that's their identity or, or some version of that, of just, just working and working and working and working. But at a certain point, you sort of have to craft out a new identity, a new, a new space for yourself mm-hmm. because there are people who might be able to do all the things I just listed there better mm-hmm. than you could. And actually, if we could free up your time, there's other things, other high-value tasks that we've ignored or haven't even realized that we should be paying attention to. So how do you... Talk to me about that. How do you help in that identity journey and in, in, in refocusing and helping them evolve? It's a great question. Um, so, you know, if you if you um, if you can imagine uh, a graph, okay, and on the x-axis is how you're spending your time, and the y-axis is where you're spending your time. Okay. And when you think about someone who's starting their business. Pretty much you're spending your time internally driven, focusing on getting everything right. And so while obviously you're externally focused, your focus is on ensuring that you're building the foundation for success and people are buying into your vision and uh, you continue to craft and make sure that you improve on a continuous basis. And uh, if you can create the right kind of flywheel of success, it will naturally over time uh, build on itself. But at some point, if you achieve the level of success that you'd hoped for, your time begins to change. And so yes, your identity at that moment is suddenly faced with a crossroad, which is, what do I wanna be known for? Do I wanna be known for the founder who made the journey and adapted into the future? Or am I the founder who's preventing others from helping the success happen because I'm getting in my own way? And I have worked with founders who really deep down are very, very self-conscious about the notion of not being seen as a founder anymore. They'll always be the founder, but suddenly 
I might have to identify a new CEO and running the company that I started because I really have reached a threshold where I'm not really that person. And so what do I do? Am I going to suddenly kind of take that role and give it to someone else and put myself on the sidelines? Am I going to recommit my interest to do something greater on behalf of the industry I'm a part of? Or am I going to constantly stay with the company and maybe be a spokesperson on behalf of the organization, but recognize that someone else can probably do the things that I know that I can't? And people's self-identity in around founding a, a company such as the one that I just found is really it's an ego question. Do I and can I put my ego aside and recognize the reasons why I did this in the first place are far greater than myself and that if I'm comfortable enough to allow others to do the things that I know I can't do, that I'm not giving anything up, I'm actually inspiring others to take the journey further, which would never have happened had I not started this company in the first place. That's right. I love that. You know, it's so funny when we talk about, I, ultimately, I always end up going back to the presidency because it's the, the most obvious and sort of, um, uh, you know, transparent version, I mean, to a, to a degree of what an executive does, right? That the president is the leader, the, the top of the pyramid, so to speak, but the presidency is more than, than one person. It's the administration. <laughs> it's all the people they put in charge of all these different areas. The number one, the workload would be too great take you know to look at you know labor and transportation and you know treasury and everything that we need other people overseeing all of those things and uh the president is not an expert in any one area um and it's it's sort of the most obvious sort of illustration of what a what a what a, an executive has to do because i think we recognize that the president couldn't you know do all the transportation secretary stuff and the treasury right. secretary right. stuff and all of that but then take that all the way down, because I think then we can say, okay, yeah, Microsoft runs like that, Apple runs like that, Nike runs like that. It's, a, it's an organization that's as big as the United States government is. But then we take it all the way down to just a small restaurant, right? The average restaurant in this country, the average independent restaurant, uh, makes about uh, $1.5 million a year, right? So it's a little more right. than $100,000 a month. Right. And it provides, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs and supports communities and all of that and trying to get those individuals to apply that same framework surely you've done some of this work so you know with companies maybe not that small but how does that translate there when you know it's one thing to deal with a big company that's already growing and and just expanding further but taking it down to when it's it's all it almost is too small it feels like we shouldn't be applying the model sure. to it Sure. And yet there's a benefit to doing so. Talk to me a little bit about that. So, you know, in my work, I'll, I'll give you a slightly alternate uh, marketplace. So whether it was in the world of sport or I spent 10 years coaching social entrepreneurs around the world. And so these are one or two person uh, places in countries where they're trying to inspire investment in local entrepreneurs and so i'm helping them be better at what they're doing uh part of the journey of being effective is taking what let's call it an outside in view so you know 
if you have someone who's starting a restaurant and believes firmly that they can make a mark in the community and create a, a sustainable business, you know, there's looking at the business from the inside out, but then there's looking at the business from the outside in and saying, okay, how am I contributing to the broader connected system of interested parties and in seeing a successful restaurant in the first place? So if I look at what I'm doing, why would someone want to come to my restaurant? What am I doing in serving their needs? And, and how do I take an external inside view to help determine how we want to run our operation? What are the things we need to consider in tying this all together? Because whether it's a restaurant of 10 people, uh, a startup company of 30 or 50 people, part of it is we are a connected system of investors, employees, suppliers, customers, partners, the community, and they all have an effect on each other. And how do I ask myself and ask of those who are coming to work for me to understand that we all share in making an impact beyond just the day in and day out of the people who walk into the restaurant. And how do we look at what we're doing as contributing to something larger and inspiring people to recognize in many ways, that's what a purpose of an organization is. It's not just profit and loss, which is obviously a metric to ensure sustainable ongoing business operations, but sometimes it's more than that. And my work in sports and in this nonprofit, the organization was Ashoka for social entrepreneurship. It provided me some additional sense of, well, wait a minute, what is the purpose of organization and how do you tie all those things together and how do you bring that into high, high growth, high profit environments? And so taking an external kind of systems view is a great way for people to see their role and their impact differently. I love this. I love all these frameworks and uh, and examples you use. This is uh, great for uh, for the audio listening experience. We can bring it to life. I want to go back and talk a little bit about. So during the pandemic, that's when you sort of had made this decision to sort of go out on your own. I want to talk about your organization a little bit. Uh, listen forward and talk about exactly what you do with that. And I'm sure there's a lot of overlap to what you do with the organizations that are uh, sort of represented by. Uh, Edison, but but talk to me about how you developed your business and specifically, you know, how you approach coaching in, in that framework. Let's start by the fact that I had wanted to do my coaching practice originally in 2010, then in 2014, and in both of those situations, opportunities came my way that continued to push this forward. And ultimately, when I made the net decision that, yes, now I'm going to do it, I'm actually glad I'm sort of waited because I had more to kind of engage in the process of coaching. So for me, at the root, you know, I'm the youngest child of Holocaust survivors. And so my parents uh, spent many years, my dad became a successful executive in his own right. And, uh, when they came to the United States and my mother was, uh, a nurse at uh, one of the local hospital systems where I grew up and they always gave back and were very purposeful. And as part of the journey, they were always 
consciously aware of the world around them and their experiences. And so they spoke in schools and churches and synagogues about their unique experiences that had been written about. And there was always an influence for me about how do I make an impact on others? And so through the coaching process is uh, as the space for me that I felt most comfortable. And in many ways, listen forward the name, which I wrote about um, in a medium post last uh, two years ago. Um, it was very much about their influence on me and the notion that listen to listen forward is in many ways the things they espouse to students throughout their lives. And, and so for me, coaching is very much about having been in the chair of leading organizations and leading others is one thing, but it's also about being present and helping people understand more about what's possible in themselves and in support of the organizations that they're a part of or potentially building and leading. And to be able to do that at this point, whether it's heavily focused on growth organizations is very satisfying because I know what I'm bringing to bear are both the experiences that I had both here and abroad and uh, bringing a perspective and insight that they may otherwise never have had before. And a lot of it is ironically rooted in what I got from my own upbringing from my parents who thankfully were very much engaged in seeing the world differently having gone through their own unique experiences yeah for sure it's funny you brought up this word perspective and um i spent a lot of time thinking about that and when i sort of speak with perspective uh clients members who would be part of the mastermind that i run um, i end up spending a lot of time talking about perspective because i've seen how how easy it is to lose that uh, you lose sight of the forest for the trees, as they say. You know, you just you're so focused on your thing. And I said, you know, you're going to have not only my perspective, but you know, dozens and dozens of other perspectives within the mastermind group, and they're going to help you see things you didn't you didn't even realize. Talk to me about talk to me about that. I mean, I guess I'm just asking to go further with with sort of what you brought up with your parents, which is a beautiful way of kickstarting this. But um, we're all shaped by our own our own perspectives we're all shaped by our own sort of role within the environment that we're in. And mm -hmm. both of those are valuable um, to a point though. So talk to me about how the work you do helps sort of shift that or get people to think differently about it. Well, you know, there is, um, there is a journey that anybody who wants to be coached has to go through. They, first of all, they've got to recognize, right, this is a choice. And so it's a choice to do something for yourself or for those others that uh, you're leading. And so to do that, you have to understand that there are different perspectives around who you are, where you are, and where you want to go. And when you do that on a one-on-one -on -one basis versus a team, there are many things you can do. There's, to the point about going back, is really understanding your life and the points in your life that brought you to today that help bring some foundational understanding as to who you are, where you came from, how you made the choices you made, whether they were choices you made proactively or responsively. And ultimately, let's understand things about you that are coming from you that you may otherwise, until I put a mirror in front of you, have not given a lot of thought to. The second thing is doing an assessment, right? So for example, I would do what's called the Hogan assessment, which is one of the key executive assessment tools and provide another version of perspective, which is things that people might not know about you that you might spend too much time doing or that people might be getting from you as a gift 
because this is a strength that others get value from you. And third is the feedback of others in the process of getting their points of view about what they expect of you, where you see strengths and weaknesses, and ultimately, what are the things that they think will help you contribute to the success of the business you're leading or that you might not realizing you might not realize that you're hindering uh, in the operation of your business. So when you get all of those things together and you work with a person like yourself or me, what you're doing is you're getting multiple data points and perspectives to help you say, okay, so the person that I think I am or the person that I want to be, uh, I've got to first get greater clarity about where I am to be able to really go forward in a productive way. When we were talking a few weeks ago, because and I was asking you, I said, you know, just the 30,000 foot view, explain to me what you do within the organization. When you come in, when you're brought in to work with uh, a leadership team or the entire organization sure. or team, and you sort of split it and you say, you said it to me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, I'll let you explain it. But you said there are three main areas where, where my work develops. And I wondered if we could spend a little time talking about those three areas and sort, sort of how you think about them. What you told me was that it had to do with personal leadership and then strengths and weaknesses and then sort of understanding capability capabilities within the organization. I wonder if we can sort of resume that conversation, if you could uh, provide some context sure. for the listeners and sort of bring them up to speed for, for what we've already started talking about. Sure. So, uh, so there are three parts. So the first one is when I'm looking at a potential investment for the firm to put money towards, uh, I do a lot of assessment of a CEO and the executive team. And there, what I'm doing is analyzing personal team and organizational leadership strengths and weaknesses, both individually and collectively. And what that does is it helps me understand the, the playing field of who potentially uh, the firm is investing in and what are the ways that I need to engage with the teams to be more effective. Um, once that occurs, then what we would do or what I would do specifically is do what I would call a team launch or a team relaunch process, which is help the team reset its own expectations to achieve the next stage of growth. And that may come both in the design of the team the way the team works effectively or ineffectively, redefining team norms and values, uh, creating a, a, a more substantial team purpose that is the team leading the business, not the organization at large. Uh, it's helping the team understand what success looks like and using a diagnostic or two to help them understand over time how are we doing against the uh, goals and metrics that we're holding ourselves and others are holding us accountable to? Um, the third thing would be working in the organization to create a level of alignment that the organization needs from the leadership team to make sure that everyone has a clear path towards success. And generally, that's facilitated conversations, and it might include helping groups of leaders just become better leaders on top of it because when you're in a growth mode as a company, uh, you have to reconsider what does success look like for us and how do I show up in this environment that's moving faster and faster. And that alone can take up a lot of time. But I would say the greatest area of focus is working with a CEO and helping them navigate the challenge of what it means to run a company beyond the point that they got to at this moment. 
and to help them personally navigate how they need to show up differently and how they need to show up for the organization and the team separate and together from each other. I hope everyone listening will mark this spot in the recording. This is worth going back and just listening to that again, because what Steve just did was sort of give you a framework, a way to, for you to begin your work within your individual organizations, whether you choose to work with a coach, a consultant or not, you want to sort of undertake this. Um, Sometimes an outside eye, outside perspective is valuable, someone to help you navigate this. But even if you just want to do it on your own, I think there's plenty you can accomplish in there. There are like four threads I want to dig into, but and I don't even know if we're going to have time for all of them. But I want to go into the team. One of the things that's really okay. unique about the industry that, that, that I'm in, that we're talking about here, um, is that uh, the way I see it, we've got two different kinds of people. Uh, and I guess I'm going to draw upon sort of your experience as an executive coach, but also your background in human resources. The way mm-hmm. I've always seen our industry is we have two different kinds of people who come to us. Number one, on one side of the line is people who are like dead set on this. They're passionate, they're driven. This is all they want to do, all they've ever wanted mm-hmm. to do. They went to school for it. Mm-hmm. They're pursuing this. They're going to be here no matter what. And then there's everybody else. And in everybody else, for so many of them, it's a means to an end. It's the out-of-work actors and the musicians. It's the dancers. It's the students. It's the teachers mm-hmm. who are moonlighting on the weekend or over the summer. It's the, you name it. They're all mm-hmm. in that other bucket. And mm-hmm. I'll say, if we're being generous, we'll say it's 50-50, but I think we probably both know it's not. It's probably 70-30 mm-hmm. tilted towards the people who this is just a means to an end. And I recognize mm-hmm. we're, you know, listen, this podcast is heard in, uh, at this point, over 65 countries worldwide. And I recognize that what I'm talking about is a very American thing because service mm-hmm. industry jobs are not looked at as especially um, uh, exciting. This is not really a, uh, an area where people pursue, although that's changing. But we've mm-hmm. got two different kinds of people. How do, you, how do you reconcile that? How do you motivate two different groups? How do you, I mean, we're dealing with sort of still this staffing crunch in our industry where we can't find people, can't mm-hmm. keep those good people. We now have to pay them so much more than we ever did before, and we have to pass mm-hmm. those, uh, mm-hmm. those uh, costs on to the, uh, you know, the end consumer. Talk to me about that and, and help illuminate some, some ways that, that our, the leaders listening to this podcast should be thinking about that. You know, it does not necessarily have to be a restaurant to have the problem that you're describing. Because in the world of work today, as we all know, people are opting in and out in a very different and more rapid way than ever before. And so for many people, work is, is not the end game, right? It supports another part of their life or maybe work is is a way to pay the bills and that's all they care about and they're not looking to be the next great chef or restaurateur they're just looking to work because they enjoy the environment that you've created for them so not everyone is motivated differently however you know the first question i would ask is what is it if you're going to build something from scratch and you wanted to inject in a something that will inspire people to come work for you what are the things to consider and as someone starting a business you have to start by understanding you know what's the kind of team you want to build um what does the elements of the team that matter to you need to comprise of 
what are the types of people that you think will work best in the environment that you want to create? And how do you allow for differences of opinions and interests and motivations to not necessarily be a challenge in the hiring process, but to see that as additive to the culture you're trying to create? You know, there's an old saying that, uh, not an old saying, but there's a saying that uh, when you hire people for culture fit, you're limiting. When you hire people for culture add, you're creating something better of yourself. The third thing is understanding the purpose of who you are and the business and why you exist in the first place. And do people understand that if it's something that's consequential, if it's challenging, uh, and it's it's something that I want to get my uh, I'm motivated by and be excited by, then you've created what in many ways are essential elements of a successful team or enterprise. The other parts, however, are where you're going to be finding success or moderate success or failure. And those are what are known as the essentials. Things like um, the way you structure work and how work is designed inside the business so that you're getting the benefit of the gifts of people or how they can contribute and you understand how they can contribute and you're willing to allow for the fact that everyone has different motivations and different ways of learning and maybe different abilities to show up depending upon the time of day. The other part is how you're spending the money. What kind of resources do you provide people? Um, is there learning on the job so that you're giving people the ability to grow this way, not just this way. Hmm. And then ultimately, the way you're compensating people, of course, in, in a place like the restaurant industry is always going to be a challenge. But the question is, what is the philosophy that you believe is most important to running your business? And how do you remain consistent and authentic about it? And finally, the last thing is, how do you as the leader of this business show up for everybody else? Are you spending your time individually with people? Are you spending time with a team? Or as I go back to the four chairs, where are you choosing to sit each and every day? And how does that engender the trust and support of those that are coming to work in your business? And it could be 10 hours a week or 60 hours a week. A lot of those driven by those other essentials that I described up front. I love this. Uh, I want to go one deeper and, uh, and we're coming close to the end of our time together, so I want to be very aware of that. But um, when we're talking about, I don't know how best to phrase this, when we're talking about uh, leadership and, and the people who are listening to this podcast are all leaders, they're all, they're all the top of their pyramid. Uh, they're all pretty much uh, owners or sort of general managers, operators, you know, directors of operation who, who oversee multiple units. They're the, they're the tip of their pyramid. Mm -hmm. When we talk about they seem connected to me, and I, and I want to just ask this, I guess, and you'll take it wherever you want, in whichever direction you want to, but sort of, okay. you know, leadership, you know, leadership and followership are, are sort of connected. And as part of that is motivation. We were, you were just talking about, you know, a whole laundry list of things of, you know, to better understand, you know, or to better serve people in their various motivations. But if there's a couple of things one, two, three things somebody could be listening to and say, you know, today, these are the one, two, three things you can do to be a better leader for your team, to better serve your team and to, and to better motivate them. 
to do what what you need them to do and what they're going to do in order to to be the best they can be how would where would you point people how would you how would you instruct them so let me start with a great quote by simon sinek do you know simon sinek oh yeah okay so the quote is there is a difference between giving directions and giving direction and when you are in the role of leading a business or maybe growing a business you've got to be very conscious of the impact that you have on people every day and those that are in your charge those that are employed by you um, are people that you care about you want them to be successful because their success is your success it's not necessarily the other way around and and i think in today's world while there is a lack of trust in leadership as a general behavior in today's world a lot of it starting at an institutional level but even narrowing down to what's happening in the workplace each and every day you do have to ask yourself and look in the mirror and say you know am i the leader that i can be and should be and what do i need to do to show up and really almost own up about myself so that i can show up to be more effective and if i don't spend the time doing that i really can't be the leader that others probably will want to follow in the first place so a lot of it is reflective and introspective for today's world but a lot of it is just being pragmatic and saying i i know enough about myself to know that there are some things that i'm really effective in and some things that i'm not and how do i begin to recognize and bring others into the conversation because running a business is essentially a team sport and i've got to learn that in a team sport i might be more of the player coach and i've got to learn to do those two things really well and if i can be a really good player coach in the world that uh, you represent chip i think that's the ultimate leadership model but being a player coach means you're giving up something to gain something more and you're giving something for others to take and to grow as well um that's an alternate behavior i think for some people that they're challenged by but it'll it'll serve them well over time i love the insight you just shared there right their success uh, is our success but it isn't necessarily true the other way around and we like and we, we forget that we lose sight of that I, I love that so much we talk about so much uh getting buy-in or, or giving you know our staff our teams a sense of ownership right which is hard especially when you get somebody you know a line cook who's going to work 50 hours a week 55 hours a week and a lot of what they do is very repetitive somebody on saute or in a garmage station in a garmage station in a fine dining restaurant might make that person might be responsible for the same five dishes every single day, every single night for 55 hours a week. And where's the fulfillment and the satisfaction and the growth and the opportunity in there? Um, how can we give that person a sense of uh, feeling of success, a feeling of ownership over what they do? Because ultimately that will be our success. But just because we're successful doesn't mean that others, uh, the people who work for us, feel that sense of ownership. I love that so much, man. That's going to that's gonna go on my corkboard. I, I love that a lot. <laughs> Um, okay. <laughs> listen, Steve, we're coming to the end of our time. I've got uh, I've got a couple uh, I got a couple questions. I ask everybody the same five questions. Are you uh, you up for this? Oh boy. Um, 
if it's all worth double points, I'm in. Let's you're, do it. You're gonna you're gonna do great. Uh, tell me what was the last great meal you had? Uh, the last great meal I had uh, was last month at a uh, a quasi Mediterranean Greek restaurant in Nyack. Excellent. What what made it so great? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the, the, we've been there a couple of times. The food is always fresh and excellent. It's, it's delivered in a way which is not overwhelming in its amount. And it's just the taste and the spice just appeals to my wife and I in particular. And I think most of all, the culture inside the restaurant where the front of house is so welcoming and also wants you to enjoy yourself you feel like you're at a large family gathering as opposed to a restaurant. For sure. I love it. Um, so hospitality is always hard to define. Uh, we're getting better at it, but it's one of those like, you know, you know, when you see it. So I want you to tell me the second question is, uh, tell me what's the, what's the last great hospitality touch you've received? Uh, the last great hospitality touch I received was when my wife and I, uh, were in Florida for, uh, a bit back, uh, later in the winter. And we were at, a a very nice hotel and the concierge uh, my wife had l lost her wallet and the concierge offered to essentially scour the entire resort to help us in a way which was both unnecessary but also really nice to help us solve for something which in the moment was very stressful in the end we found it but this person put us at ease because they took ownership of the problem. Yeah, I love it. Um, all right, so I always ask this uh, of a lot of uh, restaurant owners and operators. I'm gonna ask you the same question, I'm gonna tweak it a little bit. So this is my genie question, right? If a genie came down and could grant you one wish, right? One thing that drives you crazy in the restaurants that they could fix, you've been to enough restaurants, so I'm gonna ask you, <laughs> what's something that drives you crazy about restaurants? What's If a genie could fix one thing, uh, what would it be? What would you wish for? Oof, what would I wish for? Um, that reservations are honored for what they are, which is that you agreed to show up at a certain time and that um, the recognition is we want you here and we are welcoming you at 7.30 and that's when we will seat you. And restaurants should learn that maybe overbooking is not the best strategy and running a successful business. Yep. Okay. I appreciate that. I love it. Um, I was a maitre d' for uh, many, many years in New York City, and overbooking is an inevitability. <laughs> so I'm the, I'm the guy you can, uh, you can direct all your anger towards. <laughs> uh, but I do understand what you're saying. Um, okay. So somebody's listening to this. They're just about ready to open their first restaurant, right? They're, they're, first business that's their own uh what piece of advice would you give them somebody who's ready to start their first uh their first business um really understand your customer and know that um there is someone or some people that you want to delight and ask yourself what is it they would want from me from us to be delighted and think about things from that lens I love that. Uh, I could not agree more. All right, last question. Um, I want you to look down on the future, five years into the future. Um, obviously, the restaurant industry in particular has seen a huge change, uh, specifically probably um, towards technology or because of technology over the last mm -hmm. couple of years. So look mm -hmm. five years down the line and tell me, what do you think is coming for restaurants that maybe people don't see? What's 
What's going to happen that, that people aren't aware of yet? Well, I'd say one thing that makes me wonder is how do you use the power of AI to maybe create greater personalization about the restaurant experience? And that's not the history of Steve and why uh, we want to have Steve in the restaurant based upon his interests. But maybe is there a way for customers to self-create the meal they want to have based on a realm of what the restaurant offers and uh, maybe through targeting of my past ordering history that um, we can offer you things that appeal to you no different than going to Amazon and saying these are recommendations being on your buying behavior. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I will go one further. I think what's going to end up happening is that the industry is going to realize that we're stronger together than apart and that I've got a restaurant here and there's three restaurants over here. There's two here. There's four more across the street and the power of AI being sort of an open source, but you know, sort of centralized thing is that the system will actually know more about that one customer based on all of their behaviors, Hmm. not only on Mm -hmm. my block in my market, but really nationally, globally, that AI will help all of us better serve our customers, which in the end just means it's going to be more enjoyable for people to go out and uh, they'll choose to go out more than stay home. And and all of that will just, you know, uh, will just help the, in, the entire industry. I think there's going to kind of go, there will be a time when our hmm. bots will talk to each other's bots and those bots will actually be talking to each other to ultimately uh, make a better experience for both the restaurant, the staff and the uh, and the guest. And that is very much about having a true connected system that, first of all, people have to be willing to trust and see as a value because you're right, the stronger mm-hmm. we are together, the better we are independent of each other. And I think for some people, they don't realize and understand the power of having partnership even with my competitor and uh, because we share in a common interest, and especially something as localized and as community-driven as a restaurant. 100%. I mean, there's a reason why restaurants all migrate to the same block, why we have a place like Restaurant Row, where we've got Little Italy, we've got Chinatown, right? It's just better when we're all closer together because people will go down to that area. Hey, I'm hungry. Where do you want to go? Let's go to, and, and they just, it helps each other. It's why car dealerships are all together. It's why gas stations are at the same intersection. Restaurants are all in a row. It's like, it's not by accident. Lowe's is often right around the corner from Home Depot. They, uh, there's a, there's a, a relationship between um, com- uh, competition and collaboration. And, uh, and we just, we don't talk about it enough for sure. Exactly. And frankly, sharing, sharing what works and what doesn't, because in the end, of course, everyone is a critic too. And everyone has a point of view on how they had or did not have a good experience in your restaurant. We all know about those things. And so in many ways, supporting each other to be better uh, is also part of the journey too. hundred percent. It's something that we've, uh, we discover every single week uh, in the mastermind I run when you get 30, 40, 50 restaurant owners from all over, really all over the world. Uh, we just help each other with best practices and, you know, there's there's very, even people in the same market. And I've got, I don't know, five or six restaurants uh, based in St. Louis, for example, right? But they do not compete with each right. other. Yeah, there are only a limited number of diners in St. Louis, but there's more than enough diners in St. Louis to keep all of those places full and busy and very successful. And just watching everybody uh, swap stories and best practices and, and tips and all that is uh, is pretty valuable. And I think that will only 
grow, the, the more we come to we come to realize that. Steve, I love this conversation. Um, I want to let you sort of talk about where people can reach you, learn more about what you do, uh, ask you questions if they've got a question. Where's the best place to connect with you? Sure. Well, uh, my practice, Listen Forward, you can find me at listenforwardllc.com. You can certainly email me at steve at listenforwardllc.com. And uh, happy to talk to you further, answer questions, and uh, support you in any way that I can. I love that. Uh, I appreciate you being here. I've loved this conversation. Uh, I have taken no notes, but I'm going to go back as uh, as we go through to edit this, <laughs> and I'm going to re- I'm going to revisit a bunch of that stuff. I tried to earmark that for the listeners we were going through. Uh, but there's a lot of great stuff, uh, a lot of uh, things that you've given me to think about. So even if no one else likes this episode, I have had a blast. Uh, going through this episode. <laughs> I've learned a ton, which is at the end of the day, right? You just have to scratch your own itch. Uh, I try to invite people here who um, who offer a perspective that I don't know or going to teach me things that I don't otherwise know. And I just have to trust that other people will also get a lot out of that. So I appreciate exactly. you taking time to do this. Uh, and I and I know people will have gotten a lot out of this. Thank you. It was a pleasure, Chip. My pleasure. I'll see you. Once again, I want to thank Steve for taking time out of his day to sit and chat with me. I got a ton out of that episode. I hope you did as well. Uh, One uh, final reminder about the P3 Mastermind. We are uh, meeting with people every single week. If you have a restaurant that struggles to generate consistent, predictable 20% profit, I want you to get in touch. Set up a free 30-minute strategy session with me or one of my coaches. Visit restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. That link is in the show notes. Once again, I appreciate you being here, and I will see you next time.